I'm Allison, and I'm a great floor recovering alcoholic. Good morning. Um, first, before I get started, I just want to say thank you to everybody for allowing me to be here today. Um, I might get a little teary-eyed, but um, I've worked really hard to get here, and I've had a lot of people that have prayed me into this room. And um, it was an honor when uh, Joanne called me and asked me if I would come up here today. I actually cried on the phone, and she was like, why are you crying? This is a, this is a good deal. And I said, yeah, but I can't believe you guys want me to come and talk. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> so the three most important things uh, that I need to tell you right now are uh, my sobriety date, which is January 25th. 2002. My sponsor is Kathy, and my home group is the Alpharetta Unity Group. It's the noon meeting. Uh, we meet Mondays through Saturdays at noon, and it's an awesome meeting. If you don't have a meeting that you like, come and see us. Um, it's a great group of people. So, um, so what I'm going to tell you today is what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. Um, so, you know, <clears throat> whenever I do this, I always I don't really prepare, but I've just kind of been thinking about it the last couple of weeks. And when I came into the rooms, and there's some people here today that saw me when I got sober, um, when I finally got sober when I was 22. And um, when I came in, I wore a yellow baseball cap down real far. I had really short hair, and I wore overalls all the time. And I never took a shower. Um, I didn't brush my teeth, and I wouldn't look at you in the eye. So um, there's a big difference today. And that's a direct result of working with 12 Steps. Um, and also finding a power greater than myself. So I started drinking at a very, very young age. Uh, the first time I had a drink, I was eight. Um, and <laughs> the funny thing about it is, uh, I think I was an alcoholic when I was born. Um, I poured my first glass of scotch and um, didn't add any water, no ice cubes, nothing. And I, I went out to the TV room, sat down, and watched The Brady Bunch. And um, <laughs> it was great. <clears throat> And, uh, you know, it, it talks about in the big book, and what it talks about is that men and women drink essentially because they like the effects produced by alcohol. And the effect that I liked that alcohol produced for me was um, it allowed me to go someplace where I didn't have to feel anything. And so for a brief period of time, I could drink and I didn't have to feel. And um, I could have the family that I always wanted. I could be the person that I always wanted to be. And that's what I did. Um, and I would do that every day after school. Um, and then alcohol wasn't enough. And um, I'm not going to go in extensively to the drugs I used, but I did use drugs, and thank God I did because it got me here sooner. Um, but I started doing drugs when I was nine, and I wasn't hustling on the street or anything like that. I was um, huffing scotch guard, and nobody showed me how to do it. I just figured it out. Um, that's my addict's sixth sense. Um, and, and I was doing it because, again, it was giving me the things that, that I wanted. I liked the effects it produced. Um, and I did that for a long time. Nobody knew. <clears throat> you know, it talks also, too, about um, having a double life. And I was really good at making it look good. Excuse me. And so, you know, in, in fourth and fifth grade, you know, I wasn't much of trouble. Um, I was still able to hold it together. I wasn't drinking every day, but I drank, I drank occasionally. Um, that sounds kind of weird now. It was normal to me then. I thought, that most norm I thought it was normal for most eight- and nine-year-olds to drink. Um, that's, that's how the disease started for me. So I'd go to school, things were okay. Um, there were a lot of things going on at home, too, um, that are pretty important to my story. My brother was also having problems with alcohol and drugs. And he was in and out of treatment. And uh, my parents were having some problems, too. And, you know, for a long time, I used that as an excuse 
to propel my drinking and my using. See, because if you had a family like I did, then you do the things I did. If you had parents like I did, you drink like I did. Um, today I know that my parents and my family did the best that they could. I know that today. Um, then I didn't. <clears throat> so my brother was in and out of treatment. My parents started going to Al-Anon. Um, we talked a little bit about drinking, not a whole lot. Um, but nobody knew what I was doing. Um, so I'd go to school and make good grades and drink at night. And, um, and that went on for a while. I got into sixth grade, and um, actually seventh grade, and I started um, smoking pot and, uh, and doing some other things. And, and I was still leading that double life. Um, you know, if you went to school and you asked my teachers how I was, they'd say, oh, Allison's a great kid, you know, we really like her, and she makes great grades, and I was a star athlete in softball, and, um, but then there was this whole other side, when everybody went to bed at night, that I lived, and what I lived was, is I'd sneak out of the house, and I'd get drunk and high, and, um, and, and it worked, you know, there was a time that alcohol and, and drugs worked for me, it was fun, you know, I had friends, I got to live that life that I wanted to live. Um, it was real easy. And so, um, so that went on for a while, and then, uh, and then my, my parents split up, um, and we moved, and I was in um, eighth grade at this time. And, uh, and in eighth grade, I started doing more things. At this point, I was um, using and drinking every day. Um, but I was, still make, I was still able to make it work. Nobody knew what was going on. Um, for, for two months in eighth grade, I managed to uh, convince my mom that I had really bad allergies. So I got to skip school for two months, and it was awesome. And um, it was great because I got to use and drink all day long, and she had no idea what was going on. And uh, this was when I first hit my, my first bottom um, as a result of drinking and using, but I didn't know it at the time. Um, I woke up one, one day, and I got into a fight with a friend, and... Um, this is where, like, if I look back now, I can see it, but then I didn't. I mean, I started to have problems in my relationships as a result of drinking and using. See, I was a liar. Um, I was a manipulator, and I was a cheat. And um, I'd steal from you, and I'd hurt you, but I didn't care because it served me. And so um, I told somebody something about one of my friends, and she got angry, and she said I was the worst friend that anybody could have. And so... Um, the, the, dramatic, the dramatic person that I am, I got really upset and um, I tried to kill myself. And so I, uh, I slit my wrist and took a bunch of pills and, um, and then I ended up in Peachford Hospital. That was my first treatment experience. <clears throat> they did a drug screen and they found out all the drugs I was using. How was I going to explain that? Because before what I tell my parents is when they had caught me, oh, you know, it was just once or um, somebody made me do it. You know, I was hanging out with these boys and they just convinced me to do this. And so I was in treatment. They found out I was using drugs and I had to get honest. And so I told them that I was using and um, that's when I first got introduced to AA. Um, I was 13 years old and I used to go up to 8111. It was a smoking meeting then. It had pink walls. And um, it was great. Um, you know, so I'd walk into these rooms and no offense, but they're all these old people, you know? <laughs> and, and I hate to say this, but they all had, like, gray hair. <laughs> if my hair wasn't colored, you'd be able to see mine now. But, um, and I'd, I'd sit there and I'd listen to them, and, and what they would talk about is all these consequences. So they got DUIs, or they lost their spouse, or they lost their kids, or they lost their CO job. 
And I'm like, what is a CEO job, first off? And I don't have kids. I don't even have a boyfriend. I'm in middle school. The worst, <laughs> I mean, the worst thing that I do is skip school. And so I had a really hard time looking for the similarities. And so if you're in here today, if I can offer you just a suggestion, is look for the similarities and not the differences. You know, it wasn't about the consequences, but that's what I thought it was about. And so I, I got a sponsor at that time, and she was great. She was exactly what I needed. Um, I got several different ones, but at this time she was what I needed. And um, she was what we call a big book thumper. So she was really in the big book. She was, had a lot of rules, and it was great. It worked good for me. And we sat down um, in the room across from the, the meeting room, and she opened up her big book, and she looked at me and she said, are you willing to go to any lengths to stay sober? And I said, what does that mean? <laughs> and she said, well, you know how like you ride your bike across town 20 miles to get drunk and high? I said, yeah. She said, well, would you be willing to do that to go to a meeting? Well, I don't know. She's like, well, you know how like you skip school to go get drunk and high? Would you be willing to do that if you needed to go to a meeting? Well, I don't know. And she kept on like this. And, and I, I wasn't really sure. I thought I was. And so I tried to get sober. I'd get sober for 30 days, and then I'd go back out. I'd get sober for 30 days, and I'd go back out. And see, in, in my mind then, what I thought was, well, see, I can stop for 30 days, so I don't really have a problem. See, if I can stop, then I'm not really an alcoholic. You know, because alcoholics, they drink every day, and they're those, you know, they have all those consequences. I haven't had any consequences. Yeah, I try to kill myself, and I'm mean to other people, but that's not a big deal. And, um, and so that went on for a long time, and I got several different sponsors. I never really worked the steps. I never found a, a power greater than myself. Um, and it went on like that, and it was a miserable, miserable time. Um, eventually what would happen is I'd go back to drinking and using, and, um, and things got really out of control at this point. Um, I was at school. I got, I got out of school suspension because I got into a fight. And... Um, See, at this point, I wasn't able to maintain that double life that they talk about. It was getting difficult for me. People were starting to find out. My mom was on me now. Um, my dad was on me. Um, people just knew. And so I got kicked out of school, and I was on out-of-school suspension for like a week or something, and it was great, again, because I got to use and drink all day long. And so uh, one night, my friend and I, um, after using and drinking all day, came up with this great scheme. We were going to kill somebody. And, um, and I thought about killing that friend who told me that I was such an awful friend, but I didn't think that that would work too well. So we sat down and planned it out better, and, and so this is what we came up with. We're going to kill my mom. We're going to take her credit cards. We're going to go to Puerto Rico because we had heard that you could go to Puerto Rico and use a drink all day. I mean, what better life to have, you know, 14, year, 14 years old in Puerto Rico using and drinking all day, right? So uh, my mom comes home, she goes to bed, we're talking more about it. <clears throat> I get the airplane tickets to Puerto Rico. Um, my mom wakes up and figures out that there's somebody in the house. And so um, um, we get into a disagreement and, um, and I try to kill my mom. I hit, I hit her in the head with a hammer four times and then tried to suffocate her to death. And I share that with you today not because, um, not because of shame, but because that's the depths of my alcoholism. See, I would do whatever it took to get drunk or high, even hurt my mom. 
And so after that night, my mom said that you need help. And she took me to treatment. She didn't call the police, she took me to treatment. And I went to treatment. And um, I started this journey again. And see, and I, I didn't think that I had a problem. I just thought I was crazy. You know, I thought that what they needed to do was just lock me up in a mental institution, give me some drugs, and let's figure this out. It's not the alcohol and drugs. And so I went to treatment, and uh, and uh, they didn't. My mom didn't want me to come home, and I was really upset at that. I was thinking about that last night because uh, I didn't understand. I mean, I kind of understood, but I didn't. It was like, you know, look, I'm 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 getting sober now. Isn't this enough? And uh, nothing changed. It just didn't change. And so. Uh, so my mom didn't want me to come home, and eventually I talked her into it, and I came home, and I was going to meetings, and I was I was doing this whole deal, you know, and I was really good at living that double life. I'd go to meetings, I had a sponsor, I'd work the steps, but nothing really changed. I really didn't think I had a problem. Yeah, I tried to kill myself, tried to kill my mom, hurt all these people, but I really didn't have a problem. See, the problem was is if my parents would change, or if the school would change, or if all these people would change, then I wouldn't have to do the things I did. So, um, so I had a sponsor again, trying to stay sober, <clears throat> didn't work. Started doing that, you know, going out at night, coming home. And um, one night, at this point I think my mom started going to Al-Anon, but I'm not really sure. But at one point she caught me. She was like, what were you doing outside? Looking at the stars, I had a really bad dream. And uh, she said, I'm going to give you a choice. You can either live in my house and be sober, or you can get out. And I thought, all right, I'll leave. So at 14 years old, I left. And I lived on the streets for about a year and a half. And, um, and I did whatever I could to get drunk and high. I stole from people. I used people. Um, I did whatever I could. And, and it worked for a while. And then I remember waking up one day thinking, I can't do this anymore. I cannot do this anymore. So I called my dad. I didn't call my mom because my mom was on it now. So I called my dad. So I went to live with my dad. And I think my mom had been talking to my dad and maybe he had been going to some Al-Anon meetings because when I came to live with my dad, he had this whole contract thing. And he was like, you know, I'm going to drug scan you. And if you live here, you have to be sober. And if you use, you're going to go to treatment. And I thought, okay, no problem. Because, see, you know, it talks about in the book, too, that as alcoholics, we have the best intentions. You know, the world, the world judges us on our behaviors, not our intentions. And I always thought that I, wanted, I really wanted this, you know. Like, if you sat me down when I wasn't drinking and using and asked me if I wanted to do these things, I'd say no. I didn't want to drink. I didn't want to use. I was going to be sober. I loved you. I cared about you. But then when I added that, when I added the alcohol and drugs, all that changed. And so I told my dad, sure, okay, I'll go to treatment. I signed the contract. I'll stay sober. So I was going to meetings again, still hanging out with the friends. Um, and then I went to a party, and I got high. And so guess what happened? I failed a drug screen. And so I ended up going to treatment for 14 and a half months. That was a long time. Um, I was there from the age of 15 until 17. And um, it was the best thing that ever could have happened to me. I was in treatment with um, 15 other girls that all had the same problem as me. And for the first time in my life, I was honest. 
I couldn't lie to anybody. There was no way for me to live that double life anymore. And so they confronted me on it. I remember this one day. I came into group, and this lady got in my face. This was like the tough love era. And so she got in my face, and she told me, you know, if you don't get honest, you're going to die. And, um, and so I got honest. But after I got honest, I was so scared. Now, remind, I want to remind you, I, I went into this treatment voluntarily. So if I wanted to leave, I, I could have just said, I want to leave. Well, I ran away and, um, because I did not want to get honest anymore. And so I ran away, and they allowed me to come back, which they never allowed anybody to come back. And um, I'm really grateful that they did because they did a, they did, they did a lot of things for me. Um, I remember being in the shower, and for the first time in my life, I actually prayed to a power greater than myself. And I asked God to please help me. And so I was able to stay sober, and I stayed there at treatment. I graduated from the treatment facility, and things were good. I went back home, and things were good. I got along with my parents. I was back in school, because, see, when I was living on the streets, I dropped out of school. I was back in school. I was going to meetings. Life was good. You know, I felt really good. I felt some happiness. But it talks about if nothing changes, nothing changes. And what didn't change was the people, places, and things. See, I still thought, if I go to meetings and I do these things, I can hang out with people that drink and use. No problem, you know? And so I did that. And um, I stayed sober for about 17 or 18 months. And I had a sponsor. And um, I, didn't, I did not work the steps, but I memorized the big book. I could quote this thing front and back. I could tell you exactly what page, what line. If you wanted to quote, I could tell you where it was. And that was enough for a period of time. So I ended up going back to drinking. And um, the way it started, I was in high school. <coughs> and the way it started is a bunch of my friends were going out, and uh, they were going over to somebody's house, and I wanted to go over there. Why couldn't I drink like these people? I mean, I was 17, 18. Shouldn't I be able to drink? I mean, that was just a stage, right? I mean, I, yeah, I lived on the streets, tried to kill my mom, tried to kill myself, but as long as those things don't happen again, I'm okay. Excuse me. So I went over to a friend's house, and everybody was drinking. And I thought, well, if I just have one, it won't be a problem. Well, I didn't just have one. I had like two or three. And um, I didn't get drunk, but I just had a couple. Left the party, and everything was okay. But what happened was is it started that obsession in my mind. And those were just not enough. And then what started was is, well, I can just go out with my friends. It's Friday night. You know, everybody's doing it. So I started going out with my friends on Friday night. But it wasn't affecting me. See, it, I, I started somewhere in the middle because I had all this treatment and all this time where I wasn't drinking and using. And, and it hadn't progressed back to where it was. So I quit going to meetings. And eventually what happened, you know those consequences that all those old people were talking about? <laughs> yeah. Well, within like the first month or two of me going back to drinking, I got a DUI. And I remember when the cop picked me up, I was so drunk, and I told him, Officer, you don't understand, I'm an alcoholic. I know that this is wrong, and I'll never do it again. Well, and so when that happened, I knew that I couldn't call my parents, so I didn't call them, and I tried to figure out a way to, you know, get out of it. But um, what this basically ended up doing is it, it, set me, it set me on a road back to alcoholism and, and to active addiction. 
And all those things that I used to do started to go back. I ended up going to college, and I became one of the biggest drug dealers there, and I was still drinking and partying. And, um, and I thought what ended up happening was I started losing all these things that people talked about. I started losing friends. People started not to like me. And the only reason that people wanted to be around me was if I had something. They didn't care about me. Um, and then, like, this really weird thing started to happen. Um, I started to feel really alone. And then I started to do really weird things, like I'd hide bottles, like I'd dig up holes outside of the dorm room and I'd hide bottles in them because I thought that people were going to take my bottles. Um, I'd lie to my roommate and tell her, no, I hadn't been drinking, and I'd hide things in my clothes. And I started to, I started to live in this really obsessive and weird world as a result of my drinking and using. But see, yet again, there's nothing wrong with me, it's you. And um, so this went on for a while, and then I met a guy, and he's a really nice guy, and he told me that I had to stop using drugs, but that I could drink. And um, so I did that, and he tried to control it, and so he would, you know, keep track of how much I drank, and when we'd go out, he'd tell me when I had enough, <laughs> and, you know, that sounds really familiar, yes. <laughs> and so... Um, and so that went on, and you know, and it worked for a while. Except what he didn't know is, before I'd come over and see him, I was drinking before I saw him. And what he didn't know is, when I'd go to the bathroom, I'd have a bottle in my my purse, and so I'd be drinking in the bathroom. Um, nobody really knew what I was doing. And eventually, this stopped. It stopped working, and and I was miserable. It talks about in the big book, you know, about the the four horsemen: um, fear, bewilderment, and despair, and um, and, and loneliness, and, and all those things started to, to, to come to my life. I was restless, irritable, and discontented all the time, and everything was a fight. I was miserable. And so I remember one night, and it wasn't a special night. Um, it was just like any other. I'd gone to Athens, and my weekends started getting longer and longer. Um, I used to just drink like on Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays, and then it went to like Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then it was Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and you get the picture. And, um, and I wasn't eating. <clears throat> I was just drinking all the time. And so I went to Athens to hang out with some friends for the weekend and drank all the way up there. And um, got there, and we ended up getting to this huge fight in downtown Athens. And, uh, and I got home, and, and it was the same thing. You know, I, I blacked out all the time, and I drank to black out. And my friends woke me up that morning, and it was always like this fun thing, you know. I'd wake them up, and they'd tell me the story of what I did, and I thought, oh, that's really cool. And, but I didn't feel that way this, that morning that I woke up. And um, my friend came in and told me what happened, and I had a lot of shame and a lot of guilt. And I remember sitting there, I mean, it was dark, and I, I can picture it right now. I remember sitting there in her apartment, nobody was out there, and I remember thinking to myself, all right, God, i got to do something. Like, either, either I'm going to go on like this and I'm going to kill myself, or I don't know. And so my boyfriend called me at the time, and he, you know, he was upset, and he said, you've got to figure out something. It's either me or the booze. And I was like, all right, well, I know what i got to do. So uh, I knew that I could go to AA. I remember talking to my mom about it and asking her if she could tell me where some meetings were, and she was like, well, just call the central office. I'm like, well, can't you just tell me where some meetings are? Just call the central office. And so then I called the treatment center that I used to be in, and they were like, well, just call the central office. <laughs> like, can't somebody just tell me where some meetings are? And so it took me a week to go to a meeting. 
But I finally went. It was January 25th of 2002, and I was 22 years old. I was a sophomore in college, maybe a junior, sophomore, I don't know. And um, I walked into the Friday night meeting um, in Roswell at the Presbyterian Church at 8.30, because that's where I used to go. See, I knew where meetings were. <laughs> yeah. And so I walked in, <clears throat> and all these people came up to me, and they were all like, where have you been? We've missed you. It was so cool. I mean, I can remember sitting down, and, and it was a speaker meeting that night, and this guy, I still see him today, his name's Casey, and he told his story, and he talked about all these things that I used to have. See, there was a period of time that I had been sober, and I'd had some happiness, and I wanted that back, and I knew that it was possible. And so I wanted that, and I listened to what he said. I thought, okay, I can do this. And it was a long way to the front. I mean, it was like this long. It was long. And I don't think it's really that big of a room, but it was a long way. <laughs> and so uh, and so they started going through the chips, and they came up with a white chip. And I thought, I'm doing this. And so I picked up the white chip, and that was the beginning for me. Um, I knew what I needed to do, but it was still a really scary thing for me because I was 22. I was in college. Everybody I knew drank. How am I going to do this? So I started going to more meetings, and um, and I went to uh, this woman's meeting. It was like on a Saturday, and I remember all these women were in there, and they're all sharing and talking and crying, and um, and so I got a bunch of numbers from them, and then they all wanted to hug me, and I'm like, don't <laughs> hug me. And and I, I there's a lady that was there who got my number, and. Uh, it was like a couple of days later, I was walking on campus at school, and my phone rang, and it was her. She's here today. And uh, it was her, and she said, hey, Allison, how are you? And I was like, I'm fine. Who is this? <laughs> and she was like, it's the lady from the meeting. And I was like, oh. She's like, I just wanted to see how you were and see if you're going to come back. I thought, oh, yeah, I am. That was the first time that ever, anybody had ever called me to ask me how I was doing and wanted to see if I was going to come back just because they liked me. Not for anything, not because I was going to score him some drugs or buy him some alcohol, but because they liked me. And so I kept on going back, and, and what I did when I got sober is, is a lot of what I do today. Um, I went to a lot of meetings, probably a meeting every day, if not two. I called my sponsor every day at 3 o'clock. Um, and I went to a big book study and a 12 and 12 study, and I did a lot of service work. I cleaned a lot of chairs. I emptied a lot of ashtrays, and I made a lot of coffee. And I shook a whole lot of hands. And um, I did it not because I wanted to. I did it because the sponsor that I had told me that if I, did, if I didn't want to go back to the way I lived, then these are the things that I had to do. And so I was completely willing. I was willing to go to any lengths. I was willing to, I'll give you an example, um, she told me that if I couldn't get a hold of her, if I was ever thinking about drinking, to take one of the chips that I had out of my pocket and put it in my mouth, and whenever it melted, I could drink. <laughs> there were many a night that I sat up till 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, and that chip did not melt. <laughs> and so that's what I did. But, you know, and I, I didn't understand at the time that, I mean, I didn't know what they were teaching me. I really didn't. I, I was just really, I just really wanted what everybody had. 
Um, and they called me Sparky then. And the reason that they called me Sparky was because I was so excited about the program. Um, I was like AA's cheerleader. I wanted everybody to have this thing. I wanted everybody to be happy. I wanted everybody to not drink. I wanted everybody to have a solution. And, um, and so my sponsor and I, we started on the steps, and we started working step one. And, and I'll tell you, even though I went through the, the, the paperwork of writing down my, you know, how I was powerless and my life was unmanageable, it took me about a good year and a half before I worked a, a good, thorough first step. It really did. Um, I can remember coming into a meeting after having, like, six or seven months sober, and it finally dawned on me. I heard something in the meeting that your old playground playmates and playthings need to change. And I thought, oh, so I don't need to go to the bar anymore at night and throw darts? No, that's not a good idea. So I quit doing that. For the first six months of my sobriety, I would do that every night. See, I drank and used most of my life. I didn't know what else to do. I didn't know what life looked like not going to a bar at night, not hanging out at parties, not doing those things. I thought that's what everybody did. So I started to change those things. Um, and I started to listen in the meetings, and I stuck with the winners. I stuck with people who had over five years of sobriety. And I did that because I wanted this thing. I wanted, I wanted to be sober, but I wanted to learn how to live life. I didn't know how to brush my teeth. I didn't know how to balance a checkbook. I didn't know how to write a paper for class. Um, I had to call people and ask them about these things. So my sponsor and I went through the steps, and we got to step two, and um, we were reading the book, and she um, talked to me about, you know, that part of step two, you can find your own conception of a higher power. And, and that's what the book talks about. The book says that the main purpose of this book is to enable us to find a power greater than ourselves that can solve our problem. I did not know that then, but I know that now. And um, that was when I began my journey of understanding my higher power, who I choose to call God. Um, the way that I had used God in my life before, when I was a little girl, I can remember sitting behind the sofa when my parents would fight or when my brother was drinking, and I'd be praying to God, asking him to help. Please keep my parents together. Or please make my brother stop drinking. And none of those things would happen. And so I thought, if I ask God for help, he's really not there. Um, at least that's how my higher power worked. And then there were times when I'd get in trouble, and I'd pray and say, God, please get me out of this, and he'd get me out of it. And I think, oh, okay, well, so then if I really need something, God will get me out. You know, those foxhole prayers? And so her and I talked about it, and she asked me to write down what my conception of a higher power was. So I wrote down what my conception was. And um, I put that, I think that he loves me, and I think that he's probably bigger than me, but I'm not sure. And that was it. And she said, okay. And she said, this is what I want you to do. All right. Every morning I want you to hit your knees and ask this higher power to keep you sober that day. And then at night I want you to hit your knees and tell him thank you. And I was like, okay. <laughs> well, so I tried this, and it didn't work. And um, I stayed sober, but I couldn't get into the routine of doing it. So she had me put my keys and, like, all kinds of other stuff underneath my bed. Um, <laughs> so I'd have to get down to pray. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of funny. But, um, and so then, then I started thinking, well, all right, this whole sobriety thing is working. Let's see. I'm going to test this God thing. So I was at class one day because I'm still in school. And um, I'm in class, and I'm having a problem with this teacher. Like, she really gets on my nerves. And so before class, I'm like, all right, God, if you really work, you're going to help me not get frustrated today. And so I go into class, and I'm in class, da-da-da, you know, class goes on. I get out of class, and I realize, oh, my gosh, I didn't get frustrated. 
maybe God works. And that's how I started to use God in other areas of my life. Um, and today I can tell you that my relationship with my higher power, God, is way more than just that. Um, I talk to God all day long. Um, it is a relationship. And what I've learned through, the, through my time in, in sobriety and in the 12-step program is just like any relationship, it has to have work. If I don't communicate with God, then I'm not going to listen, you know? And I have to be honest with him. And I have to use my higher power every single day. So time went on, and I worked the steps, and um, I met a guy again. And um, there's a pattern here. And, and, so, um, and so I met this guy, and I got rid of my sponsor because she wasn't giving me what I needed. And, uh, and I didn't work the steps. Um, but I did get another sponsor. And, um, and this guy and I, within two months, we ended up being engaged and talking about marriage, and it was this great thing. And, um, and during that time, <clears throat> what I did is I went to a lot of women's meetings. Um, my sponsor at the time tried to get me to work the steps, but I wasn't really open to working the steps. And she said, well, if you're not going to do that, then at least go to meetings. And so I said, okay. So I went to meetings. And, um, and I started to learn about other things. I started to learn about like, how to have relationships with people. And I love this story. I have to share this story. But, um, so you know, this whole like, selfish thing that we alcoholics suffer from, and it talks a lot about in the book, you know, how we think about ourselves. And, um, and so I was doing that, and I had committed to someone that had a commitment problem too. I had committed to someone that I was going to do something for them when they got married. I was going to take care of their animals. And on the day of their wedding, I called and said that I couldn't do it. I thought, what a big, it's not that big of a deal. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was a big deal. <laughs> and so my sponsor was livid, and she said, this is what we're going to do. She was like, you're on commitment, or you're on a commitment restriction for 24 hours. So you cannot commit to anything. If somebody asks you to do something, you have to politely tell them, I'll have to think about this, and I'll get back to you. And then you need to call me, and we'll talk about it, and then you can commit to it. <clears throat> so that's what I did for 30 days. It was the hardest thing I ever did in my life. But what I learned was is, is that I didn't have to commit to everything, and I learned about other people. I learned about, you know, how my decisions impact you. And so I went on like this. My, my ex-husband and I at the time, we, uh, well, now you know the end of the story, but um, <laughs> we got married and we, we moved. And I swore that when I moved that I was going to get back into the program, that I was really going to start working the steps again. And so I went to a meeting in Macon, and I felt like a newcomer all over again. At this time, I had about two years of sobriety, and it was really scary. Um, I got numbers, and I called all those numbers on that list, and I was so scared. I called everybody. I sat in my car one day, and I called the whole list. There was like 25 numbers. I went through the whole list, and nobody answered their phone. And then finally this lady answered, and she said, um, I said, do you remember me? Oh, yeah, I remember you. You're the girl from Atlanta. I said, yeah. And she's like, well, I thought you'd never call. I'd love to be your sponsor. I was like, I didn't ask you. <laughs> <laughs> and that was Barbara, and Barbara ended up being my sponsor. And um, she was an amazing lady. <clears throat> we, uh, we started immediately on a course of action. And... Uh, she was one of those people, like, you could go to a meeting and you knew, like, she had her chair, and, like, every day at the meeting you knew she'd, exactly where she'd be. And she was there, like, every single day, like, Monday through Sunday. It was crazy. 
So if I ever had a problem and I couldn't get her on the phone, I could go to a meeting and I knew exactly where she'd be. Um, but what she taught me was consistency too. She taught me about commitment. She talked about, you know, she she taught me about honoring myself and honoring other people, and um, and about consistency because that was a problem for me. And so we go to meetings. I met with her every day. We started going through the steps again, and um, we started reading the book. And I started doing service work. I got really involved in my AA group. I became a secretary. And people like trusted me. You know, like I, I got to go and like open up the meeting before anybody got there, and I got to make the coffee, and and I was the person who, if anybody trusted me before, I take from them. You know, like I stole money from all kinds of people, and um, I wasn't doing that now. And so we started going through the steps, and um, we started with the four step, and um, I I worked really hard on it. Like she gave me a week, and I worked on it for a week. I went to her, we sat down, we were going to do the fifth step, and um, she let me read all the way through, and she said, sweetie, I think you're still blaming people. You need to rip that up and start all over. I was like, what? <laughs> so I ripped it up and I started all over. And, um, and I started to look at myself. And I started to look at, you know, how I, I blamed people for my alcoholism and how I blamed people for my behavior and how I used people to support my character defects, you know. And so we went through the steps and we continued on and I started to learn about humility. Um, and I started to learn about trusting and accepting my higher power. And we got to step eight and nine. And so I made my list of all the people that I was going to harm. I love this. And so I thought, well, I'm in Macon, so it's not a big deal. I'll just write all these people down. I'll never see them again. And uh, so I wrote them all down. And, um, and, and then I started to have some problems in my marriage. And I started talking to my sponsor about it. And, uh, and my husband at the time asked for a divorce. And so my steps kind of went on hold for a little while. And, um, and during that time, and thank God for my sponsor, because what she told me is, I can't help you. The only person who can is your higher power. And she told me what to pray. And she said, every day I want you to pray, thank you, God, I forgive him. And that's what I did every day. And um, I couldn't go to meetings and talk about it because my ex-husband was in the program. So the only person I could talk about it with was God. That's how I learned how to trust my higher power. And it was the scariest time of my life. Um, and it was really hard. But you know what the people in the room said? Even though they didn't know what was going on, is they still helped me through it. You know, I'd show up at meetings and they'd give me a hug. And they'd say, how are things going? Good. You want me to pray for you? Yeah. Is there anything you need? No. But they were there. You know, I learned about the fellowship of AA. And um, and eventually what happened is my ex-husband and I got divorced and I ended up moving back up to Alpharetta. And guess what happened? <laughs> All these amends I had to make. <laughs> it's so funny how God works, you know? Um, and my God has a sense of humor about this. And so I came back up here and I was really scared because I wasn't sure about what I was going to do and what this was going to look like. Um, I ended up um, enrolling in a school and um, I ended up getting my master's. And uh, I became a professional counselor, and I work um, as a therapist with adolescents and young adults who have substance abuse problems. Um, and, you know, what I ended up doing then, I, I kept my sponsor in Macon because I, I couldn't find anybody up here. And, and it was on the agreement that I'd have to go down there and see her, like, once or twice a month, and I had to write her. So I would write her all these kinds of letters all the time. And we talked a lot, and um, I went to a lot of meetings. But during that time, something happened. You know, going to graduate school and trying to stay sober is, is pretty difficult. Um, at one point in time, I was um, 
going to school full-time, working full-time. Um, I had an internship doing like 20 hours a week, and I was trying to stay sober. So I didn't get to a lot of meetings. And it started to show in some areas, especially in my relationships. Um, at this point in time, I had about five years of sobriety, and I was in a relationship with a guy who was an alcoholic and a drug addict. And um, I remember after New Year's, sitting there, thinking to myself, I have five years of sobriety, did I get sober for this? And, um, and that's when I launched on my course of congruency, um, where I wanted my life to match up, not just on the inside, but on the outside. And that's part of what integrity is, you know, and that's what the steps teach me, six and seven. You know, integrity is when all you guys leave today, and I'm sitting here, and there's, there's, I have this, you know, tissue, and I throw it into the trash can, and I miss. Do I pick it up, or do I leave it? And that's what happened in my life, is I was talking all this good stuff that I was doing, but I wasn't actually doing it, you know? And so I started doing it, and uh, he and I broke up, and I started going to meetings. I started to get really involved, got some sponsees, got a home group, started getting into service in my home group, and uh, I ended up graduating from uh, my master's program. And a couple of years ago, um, another really difficult thing happened, and uh, my sponsor, Barbara, she passed away. And um, Sorry. I've never lost anybody like that before. But you know it's a blessing because I know why God put her in my life. Her favorite step was step three. And her favorite prayer was the third step prayer. And I know that God put her in my life to teach me about trusting in Him. Because when she died, I had to start all over. I had told this lady everything. She was the only person in my life that knew everything about me. And I remember I went to a meeting that day, and I was so upset. <clears throat> and I go to a meeting with a lot of old-timers, which is great. And um, as I walked in, and they were all like, Allison, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Just keep on coming. And I'd share all the time about this. And I kept on looking for sponsors. And um, and I remember when I asked Kathy to be my sponsor, and I was like, I was so nervous. And so I finally found Kathy. And it was a miracle because Kathy experienced the same thing with her little sponsor. And so we were able to share that. And um, I'm just going to share a couple more stories. A couple of years, <coughs> a couple of, well, it was like a year ago, I was riding, on the, I ride motorcycles, and, um, which is part of gift of sobriety. And, um, and, so, uh, and so I was riding on the motorcycle, and we're up in Asheville, um, North Carolina, and we're like going down through the hills, and um, I'm you know, kind of thinking, and I'm, I'm going through this whole, like, what do I need to do, and am I doing things that I need to do, and, and I see this sign, and it says Macon County, and, and as soon as I see Macon County, I start thinking about Barbara, because Barbara lives in Macon, and, um, and so I'm thinking about Barbara, and I'm talking to God, and I'm talking to Barbara, and I'm like, okay, am I doing what I need to do here, and, um, and then all of a sudden, there's this huge sign, like, you know, the billboards, and it says, Allison, do random acts of kindness. And I was like, oh my gosh. (laughs) 
Barbara and God are speaking to me. <laughs> and so, you know, see, like, little things like that happen to me today. Like, there's, I mean, my, my story is littered with God shots, and that's what I call them. I mean, and it's, you know, the, it, it talks about in here that I have a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of my spiritual condition. What I get out of this program is what I put into it. The more that I sit with my higher power and the more that I put in with God, the more I get from it, the more that I can see God working in my life, you know? And I have awesome things in my life today. I mean, what happened as a result of working the 12 steps is um, I can be in a room by myself and my mind is not crazy. It's quiet. I can look at myself in the mirror today and smile because I like the person that's looking back. I, I have so much self-confidence. Like, I can walk in this room today and look at every single person in the eyes and not have to look away. Because, see, before there were all these things that I had done that if you knew, then you wouldn't like me. And today my life isn't like that. Today I'm an honest person. Like, I show up for my job and I do my job. You know, I still have some character defects because they don't always go away. But, you know, I, I'm open today, and I am the person who I am. And, uh, you know, not only that, but I have the relationships in my life that I didn't have before. You know, I lived with my mom for a really long time, and I just recently moved out, and, um, and we have a good relationship. You know, and that's a direct result of my 12-step program as well as her 12-step program. Um, I have a relationship with my dad, too. Um, I can have another relationship with a human being, and it'd be okay. Um, this program has taught me how to be a person. It's taught me how to be a woman that's recovering with dignity and grace. Um, I've worked the 12 steps. I'm now 30 years old, and um, I never thought that I'd be sober this long. And I am truly happy, joyous, and free. Truly. I'm going to read one thing, and then I'm going to stop. And it's my favorite page from the big book. And this is my experience, and it comes from um, Bill's story. And it's from page 13, and it's after Ebby's come to talk to Bill. And um, Ebby was somebody who got sober with uh, the Orthodox group, or, and, and so he comes to talk to him. And he says, this is Bill, I was to test my thinking by the new God consciousness within. Common sense would thus become uncommon sense. I was to sit quietly when in doubt, asking only for direction and strength to meet my problems as he would have me. Never was I to pray for myself, except as my request bore on my usefulness to others. Then, and on, then only might I expect to receive, but that would be in great measure. My friend promised, when these things were done, I would enter upon a new relationship with my Creator, that I would have the elements of a way of living which answered all my problems. I emphasized all. Sorry, guys. Belief in the power of God, plus enough willingness honesty and humility to establish and maintain the new order of things were the essential requirements. Simple, but not easy. A price had to be paid. It meant destruction of self-centeredness. I must turn in all things to the Father of Light who presides over us all. These were revolutionary and drastic proposals, but the moment I fully accepted them, the effect was electric. There was a sense of victory, followed by such a peace and serenity as I had never known. There was utter confidence. I felt lifted up, as though the great clean wind of a mountaintop blew through and through. God comes to most men gradually, but his impact on me was sudden and profound. And that was my story. So thanks, guys, for letting me be here today.